Good morning, Connect Church. And uh, what a privilege it is to be with you on this Sunday morning. And this is your virtual service. And uh, I do not take it lightly to be a part of what God is doing in your midst. It always fills me with uh, uh, some type of um, godly fear to be used as a mouthpiece uh, for God. And uh, thank you so much to Pastor John and to Pastor Howard and all the other staff uh, who had a hand in making this happen. My name is Peter Cornelius and I'm the pastor of the Claremont Baptist Church. Um, and I will be sharing with you for the next few moments what God has laid on my heart. I am in the middle of a series entitled The End of Days, and I have been looking at um, uh, what it is to survive the end times. I've been looking at it um, from a slightly different perspective other than the usual pre-dispensational or dispensational type of perspectives, and um, my sermon today is somewhat related to that. Um, although this um, is simply part of my study and jumped out at me as a separate sermon. Um, I am in Acts chapter 2, and um, you can read with me from verse 1 till the end of the passage, which is verse 17. And if you need a title for today's message, the title is simply Amazed and Perplexed. And you'll see why in a moment I've decided to entitle it as such. Acts chapter 2 from verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Serene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Church, pray with me for a moment as we commit this time to the Lord. Almighty Father, we come before you humbled by the fact that you still use sinners who have been legalized as saints still to be part of your work. I pray for every person who hears this message, Lord, and may they find value in it. 
and may it have a divine transformative power that takes them into eternity with greater confidence. We ask this for your sake, in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title, as I mentioned, is Amazed and Perplexed. So just generally speaking, uh, here's the big idea. When the Spirit of God enters into your space, enters into your reality, and controls your agenda and your geography, you will end up being amazed and perplexed. Those who share that similar space and atmosphere, who witness your um, encounter with God, who witnesses your anointing of God for His purpose, too will be amazed and perplexed. And so the disciples were amazed and perplexed. And just by the way, uh, the term amazed both in the Hebrew and in the Greek can be translated a number of ways. But it's not a term unknown to the divine scriptures. Um, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, both terms, amazed and perplexed, separately used, appear numerous times. But there are only two instances where they are uh, coupled together, um, where the combined effect is not only that are they amazed, bewildered, but they uh, are also perplexed, a little bit confused, um, and in awe, shock and awe. And this happens for a number of reasons, but usually it's when uh, the unexpected enters into your realm. Your senses are not quite sure what they are seeing, perceiving, or feeling. And your brain needs some time to process and catch up with what is really happening around you. And so there's the sense of amazement and bewilderment, but there's also this understanding that there is a lack of understanding on your part, and confusion is part of the general mix of that experience. So there's two areas, of course, like I said, um, where this combination of words and phenomena um, are used in Scripture. The one is right here in Acts chapter 2, and the other one is in Mark chapter 10, verse 24. And this is what it says. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And I need you to understand that when God uses this term of confusion and difficulty, at least the concepts as well, with this amazement that very often follows when we see something extraordinary, significant, or something that we don't fully comprehend, something miracle-like, something sign and wonderish, then it is important and significant for us to understand as believers. Uh, I am often amazed and perplexed by the actions of people who are evil. And I don't understand how are you able to do things um, the way you do them. Uh, things that hurt people, uh, things that bring uh, harm to people. But I'm also amazed and perplexed in a positive vectorized way uh, for people, usually believers, who display self-sacrifice on a level that for me puts them in superhero status. I'm thinking of an article I just read not too long ago, a man by the name of Chuck Feeney. And Chuck Feeney is, uh, is quite an age now, his, his retirement years. But Chuck Feeney just finished the process of, he's an Irish-American, and he finished the process of giving away $8 billion of wealth that he had acquired in his lifetime. 
And it took him a long time to give this money away. Most of the time he gave it to causes anonymously. Uh, he blessed people randomly with acts of kindness. And uh, in the last few weeks, he had just uh, finished giving the last of his $8 billion. Chuck Feeney lives a very simple life, uh, doesn't drive um, a car that would draw much attention, a very simple uh, automobile, I understand. But he's a man who understood that with great wealth comes great responsibility, and he um, dispensed of that responsibility in a very um, beneficent way to those around him. He saw the need and the help to provide it. That perplexes me. Because I think the culture of the day is one where we hoard wealth, we try to attain power, and we hold on to it no matter what. And I think it's amazing and perplexing what Mr. Feeney has done, and I think he serves as a great example to all of us. Um, this idea of combining things that are amazing and perplexing also perplexes me. And I look at this passage and I find a few things um, that stand out for me. I've crystallized this into three points. Uh, forgive me, I am a Baptist-trained pastor, but it does help me with my short attention span and lack of academic skill to wrap my mind around sometimes very difficult concepts. The first thing I'd like to notice is that um, in verse 12 it says, Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? This is the congregation of multinational God worshippers, Jehovah worshippers, gathered and witnessing the amazing act of God before them, which is the inauguration of the church, the preaching of the gospel in their very own tongues, using people who are not academically trained. They are simple Galileans in their very own words. Now, it sells Galileans short if you were to study who the Galileans were. They weren't all illiterate fishermen. They were quite good businessmen, very skilled artisans uh, across the board of artistic endeavor. Um, and so that was kind of just the public perception that people had of the Galileans, but they weren't highly esteemed people. Nonetheless, they were perplexed by what they thought were these simple, uneducated people who should not be able to amaze and perplex them. But that was the result. And what it does was, or what it did was, it, when you come into the presence of God, and when God does supernatural acts that can only be spiritually discerned, and when that spiritual discernment spills over into the lives and the witness of even the ignorant, of even those who under usual circumstances wouldn't know a move of God if it slapped them on the face and broke their nose. They would not be aware of the move of God. And I want to just take a moment and pause. I believe, brothers and sisters, that one of the greatest needs in the church today is the awareness of God. In fact, if you would permit me, one of my points in last week's sermon is that if you are to survive this uh, end time, and end time is defined as um, from the time of Jesus' ascension, uh, from that point onwards, he could be coming back again. No man knows the hour, no man knows the day. We simply know the time frame, the epoch, and the age, and we are in the age of the last days. But if you're going to survive 
the last days and whatever your model is of eschatology, if you're going to survive these days, one of the survival uh, uh, mechanisms that you require in your survival kit for the end days is this idea that I am aware not only of my environment, not only self-aware of who I am and what my destiny is and who I'm called to be, but you're going to need to be aware of what God as an independent creator being is doing. Be aware of the move of God. The disciples were aware of the move of God. They were in the thick of it. They knew exactly uh, what God was doing. They didn't fully understand it, but they knew God was using them. Those around, those who get caught up in the attractional, gravitational pull of the gracious presence of God, end up asking this question. Amazed and perplexed, they asked, what does this mean? Now, this is a philosophical question. And at the very least, when the presence of God comes into your experience, into your ambit, it turns just the ignorant soul, at least, at the very least, into a philosopher. He begins to question the very purpose of his own existence. But I want you to understand the direction or the vector of the question. So, this is philosophy, this is not theology. Uh, this is not uh, Christian spirituality and prayer directed at God, searching his face for an answer. I want you to see their response. They're in the presence of God. They're seeing the miracle of God. They are seeing which spiritually, after the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, is the most important event to take place. This defines the age of the end days and the handmaidens who will be called of God to do his bidding and his speaking. But listen to what it says. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another. Folks, I believe in consultation. I, in fact, I even believe in uh, good criticism, healthy, critical responses in most things that I do. Um, uh, in fact, by the time you see this, I probably would have listened to this probably five or six times, tearing it apart, seeing how we could make it better and how the inflections of my voice, even in terms of my homiletical style, uh, could have been tweaked and changed to produce a better product for you, the listener. But one thing I do know is that the limitation of human consultation uh, is very real. That no matter how many times I consult other people who uh, have had the same experience or other people who have studied the same experience and looked at it, studied the Greek, studied the Hebrew, even know the ugarit and the er around it, then I'm still going to be left wanting. That's only academic. It's only at least philosophical. It's like looking into a dark pit with no eyes, asking people to give you direction. Uh, no one knows What's going on? But at least it produced a question, understanding that I'm amazed. Do you know what's going on? Do you know what's going on? They couldn't answer it. And I'd like you to take a look at your surroundings. Just like this congregation of international visitors to Jerusalem, Yahweh worshippers who are now confronted by the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the work of His Holy Spirit. It's their first exposure to it. And they're wanting to know, what does this mean? 
Now, that's a philosophical question. They could have asked it pragmatically. Uh, how does this benefit me? They could have asked it practically. What must I do? And they could have asked it in so many different ways. But at the very least, the movement of God produces a philosophical you. What does this mean? What does it mean to me? What does it mean to the greater things in this world? Look around your life, your circumstances, and see what God is doing. Be aware of it. And at least ask the question, what does it mean to me? But then you're going to have to graduate a little bit later, but I'll keep that for a point later down the line. So my first point in all of this, you can turn with me to verses 13 and to verse 15. And Let's just look at verse 15. It says this, These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. So the first point is this, supposal. And supposal is a little bit of a made-up word, but to suppose means to assume. And when you assume, you make certain conclusions without knowing all the facts. And you come to an end uh, that might be premature in terms of the process of truly discerning what's going on. And so assuming and supposing uh, are on the opposite sides of the spectrum of knowing. And there's a lot of assuming taking place over here. You see, the, um, uh, the true Yahweh worshippers who were there to celebrate um, uh, Passover and were there to worship Jehovah God, um, they knew that this is a God thing. They didn't quite know what to make of it. But then there were those who had no interest in spiritual matters, had no interest in getting close to God, and uh, they end up being mockers. And they end up even trying, maybe possibly this is one theory, um, that some of the prophets um, that operated within the pagan religious systems, and there were many of them in those days, um, would use alcohol to get into a tipsy or inebriated drunken state, uh, which would aid them then uh, to speak the oracles of their worshipped idols and gods. Now, whether that be true or not, the point is, it is wrong. Whether you are a mocker um, uh, degrading the things of God, or whether you are a pagan worshiper trying to put on the same level the worship of the true one God with some idol created being that we worship, I want to tell you, it is wrong. And so they assumed too much. Uh, and of course, if you um, go down to... Um, uh, verse 14, uh, Paul says, uh, uh, Peter rather says quite clearly, Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, addressed the crowd, and he says, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. He would not implore them to listen with such energy and with such devotion if he had known that they were on the right path, but they clearly had assumed incorrectly and the philosophers were looking for answers and having discussion with the wrong people. They should have gone on their knees, asked God to give them a vision and an understanding as to what's happening around them, but your brother who is as ignorant as you and limited as you, your sister who has Lack of knowledge, the same as you do, cannot point you in the right direction. Philosophy is not enough. Supposing is not enough. I'd like to share with you a very quick story. And this is the story of me at the previous church that I led. And we had this big ladies event. There was about 250 ladies who all came to the spray event, Ladies World Day of Prayer. 
and we had set the place up, and um, I was about to leave so that the ladies could be on their own, and as I walked out um, of the entrance of this facility, I turned around and something hit me in my face, and at that point, I was, truly was amazed and perplexed. Didn't know, literally didn't know what hit me. My face and my head was zigging. Didn't feel too bad, to be quite honest, only because I didn't know what happened. And about, it felt longer, um, but it was probably like maybe two or three seconds until I realized that I had been hit by about a quarter of a red brick. Um, and so someone had hurled that or thrown that in my direction. And as I turned to walk out, it hit me right here, just under my eye on the upper part of my cheekbone. Um, thankfully, it, it must have hit me flush, because uh, just the skin was a little bit torn, but no bleeding, and if you can believe, my face did turn a little bit red and blue. They don't call me colored for nothing. When I realized what had happened, I cast my eyes outside, and must remember, at this point, most of the men had left, and there's only females there, and um, I saw four youngsters um, who were dressed in traditional Islamic garb, shouted something in Arabic, raised their fists and a few other choice fingers at me and ran on. Now at this point, um, you can't see my full girth behind this pulpit, uh, but my waistline has increased over the years. I'm not the guy I used to be 20 years ago. And uh, even then, I had picked up quite a bit of weight. But man, anger is a powerful motivator, and I chased these guys down. Um, ran over the road, some cars stopped, and so forth. It was quite the scene. And I caught two of them, one wrestled away, and I caught the one, had him firmly in my grasp. And he was scared beyond scared. Walked back with him to the church. At this point, there's a whole lot of people watching and wondering what's going on. Some people stopped their cars as we walked back through the very same road that had stopped traffic to get this youngster. And uh, they will all say, yeah, hit him. And, you know, do with him what you want and all those type of things. And as I'm walking there, still angry, I was unaware of what God was doing. I thought the best thing to do is take him to the police. And, and this kid must have been about 12 or 13. Couldn't have been much older than that. I put him in the car and we rode towards the police. And I'll cut the story short for time's purposes. But number one, I was unaware as to what God was doing. I thought this was about me being attacked. After a series of what I think are divine interventions in terms of my thinking process, I realized that it's not about me being it. It's about God having an appointment with this youngster, and I won't mention his name, um, who now had the opportunity to sit with Pastor Peter and be explained the gospel that he probably would never, ever hear in his entire life. And when I asked him about it, he said he had never heard the gospel, but he had heard what they tell him the gospel is. And I shared with him the gospel, and I used three things. I used grace, I used mercy, and I used favor. All concepts that he should have understood, generally speaking. It's at this point uh, that we're sitting outside of the police station, and I share the gospel with him. And I'm now fully convinced that God's plan was so that this young kid could hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's more to tell for the story, um, but for time's purpose, like I said, let's move on. Be aware. Don't suppose you know what's happening. Don't assume um, to know what God is doing unless you ask him. And so be aware. Understand that you're not the master of the universe and that you cannot determine what the true reality is around you and what the purposes of God are. Pray. Ask God. Consulting with other believers, great thing to do. God often speaks to other believers. But at the end of the day, God is real 
And God is independent of the voice of people around you. You might choose to use that in your experience, but um, don't put too much of a premium just on what the human voice says. So the first thing is, don't suppose. The second point is simply this from verse 13. Opposal. You've, you've heard this already. Some are ever made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Friend, there's always going to be a mocker. There's always going to be a derider. There's always going to be an interrogator who's not there to improve you, but there to destroy you. And there's always going to be an accuser. In other words, there's going to be an opposer. There's going to be someone or some people that wants to derail the movement of God in your life. And there's two ways to do that. We, we can either misdirect you, or we can either uh, demotivate you uh, to such a degree that you give up yourself. The most extreme one, which I don't want to mention, but this is possible, is to kill you yourself. But whatever methodology the enemy or the enemy's agents tries to use, I want you to know that there will be people who will oppose your viewpoint, will oppose your faith in Christ Jesus, and will oppose your anointing, your call, your job, your predestined purpose that God has set aside for you. They even accuse them in this proposal. Listen to what they say. Some, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. That's an accusation and not just an opposition. Folks, stay the course. Once you are aware, once you've made uh, the correct assumptions that God is busy and you inquire of Him as to how to interpret your, your reality and your situation, I'd like you to understand, my friend, that there's going to be opposition. You stay the course. Do not yield to it. <coughs> Excuse me. Last but not least, there is a proposal. Listen to verse 14 to verse 16. We're almost done. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No. Me in with a no. It's an emphatic denial of what the opposers are accusing Christians of. It's trying to take what God is doing and uh, uh, putting it on the same value as just normal human activity and at the least over here, debauchery. Losing control of your mouth, uh, losing control of your spirit and your human faculties to such a degree that what is emanating from you is nothing more than gibberish and nothing more than the undisciplined result of a body that has lost its control. But that's not you. And the proposal that Peter puts forward to them is to say, this is the activity of God. If you don't have the wherewithal, if you don't have the attention and the, uh, uh, the ability to see what is happening, Peter clears it. And he only stands up when he realizes that the flow of discerning the information and the stimuli in the context and environment is going in a direction that it should not be going. Notice Peter keeps quiet. He's quite happy for them to philosophize and ask one another, what does this mean? What should I do? How does this benefit me? He's got no problem in asking uh, or saying nothing as they ask these questions. But the moment the accuser and the opposer come, and says, listen, these guys are drunk. 
It's only nine in the morning and look at these people. They are drunk. They're getting into this pagan gibberish. It's at that point that Peter gets up and with all the boldness that he has now become known for, gets up and says, listen, fellow Jews and those of you who live in Jerusalem, in other words, everyone that can hear my voice, listen carefully to what I say. They are not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is an act of grace. This is the presence of God arresting and birthing his church. In fact, proposal, just by the way, there's a, been a movement, um, a philosophical movement, um, an epistemological movement um, that has sought to destroy proposals. And um, it essentially says, listen, don't propose anything to me. Reality is mine to interpret, and it's all okay. Don't buy into that. Because when the proposal of God enters into experience, it turns philosophy into prophecy. And the prophecy, of course, is a bit later, quoting from the prophet Joel, that the Spirit of God is going to fall on all flesh. People are going to see visions and people are going to dream dreams. But there's going to be a flood of the activity of God in your conscious state as well as in your, as in your subconscious. There will be a saturation of the activity of God. Folks, it's time for me to wrap up. I want to encourage you. Be aware of what God is doing in your life. Do not assume and suppose things uh, without consulting God. Consult people, sure, but consult Pray to God. Ask Him, what is He showing you? Number two, there's always going to be people who oppose you. You stay the course. You stick with God because they, God will provide someone, some leader, some Christian strong person, male or female, young or old, who's going to get up, address them, and propose to them that what is happening is an act of God. Just by the way, if you don't know Jesus, you need to come to know Him. He is the Son of God. He is the only Savior by which any man or woman can be saved. And if you've never made that commitment yet, I ask you to do so today. If you are a Christian who has been ignorant to the move of God, and that if the miracle, the sign, and the wonder, the Spirit of God comes in power right before you, you might be the mocker. You can change. You can repent. And you can be counted amongst those holy and the called out. Of God. Let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray right now that you make us aware of what you are doing and that we do not assume the wrong things, but we would understand that God is doing an awesome thing in our presence. You help us interpret reality, dear Lord. I also pray, dear Lord, Father, that you help us to go through the opposition for people will come and people will, dear Lord, Father, change the narrative and try and move things away from Jesus. And last but not least, dear Lord, Allow us to turn our philosophy into God-directed prophecy that leads people back to Jesus. We ask this for your sake in Jesus' name. Amen.